Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Like I promised you last time, well, we're moving up and catching up on everything that we did before, and this time we'll be looking at the Tungutsk meteorite, which is amazing, because that's one of the biggest astronomical events that have ever happened on planet Earth, and it's still an amazing, fun event to just look at from a cultural perspective as well. Thing is, during every summer, every year, we observe the International Asteroid Day, that happens on the 30th of June. And it's occasionally observed globally, as the United Nations proclaimed it, on that date, to, uh, quote, raise awareness about asteroids and what can be done to protect Earth, its families, communities, and future generations from a catastrophic event. Now, this date was chosen because of the Tungutska meteorite. And it's covered with a lot of weirdness, a lot of cool stuff, and uh, a lot of astronomical significance. It's one of the, well... We are the things that local ancient aliens people like to brag about and everything. It's just a fun thing because one of my hobbies is astronomy. And when you look at Tungutska event, we really haven't had that in living memory of human race. We haven't had anything like that. However, I must warn you, this whole episode will have a bit more uh, scientific data than usual. If you're a fan of astronomy, say if you watch BBS Space Time or listen to Isaac Arthur or something of that sort, then you'll find this fun. But, well, I'll try to put things in perspective for people who are not informed and not interested in astronomy that much. But to understand what the Tugutska event was, it was a meteorite. But still, you know, uh, just just be prepared because now and then we drop some cool terms and speak in a more scientific language than usual. And sadly, this is going to be one of those times. But I'm sure that everyone here will, you know, manage, because it's not that terrible at any rate. At least, I think it isn't. If it is, you can surely just yell at me. I'll be fine with you yelling at me too. So, let's go and do this then, and, well, hope you'll enjoy, because, don't worry, for all of you guys who are not astronomy fans, there's a lot of conspiracy theories and history involved with this one too, so, no one's gonna lose from this. So, in 7.17 a.m. on the 30th of July... 1908, a mysterious explosion occurred in the skies over Siberia. It was caused by the impact and breakup of a large meteorite, at least that's what most scientists think happened, we'll get the conspiracy theories later, but this happened at an altitude roughly 6 kilometers in the atmosphere. Realistic pictures of the event are unavailable, however, Russian scientists collected a lot of eyewitness accounts of the event. And, well... This is kind of a weird thing because this is amazing explosion. This impact of this event, the magnitude of this event, has been really recreated by comparing observations made at different distances. Seismic vibrations were recorded by sensitive instruments as much as 1,000 kilometers or 600 miles away. At 500 kilometers, 300 miles, observers reported deafening bangs and a fiery cloud on the horizon. 
about 170 kilometers, 110 miles from the explosion. The object was seen in the cloudless daytime sky as brilliant sun-like fireball. Thunderous noises were heard. Uh, also, as the newspapers of the time reported, uh, <clears throat> the old women of the villages were crying. The villagers thought the end of the world was coming. And that's at the end of a very scientific reporting of this whole event. But this is just to explain what's happening. At distances around 60 kilometers, people were thrown to the ground or even knocked unconscious. Windows were broken and crockery knocked off shelves. Probably the closest observers were some reindeer herders asleep in their tents in several camps about 30 kilometers or 20 miles from the site. They were blown into the air and knocked unconscious. One man was blown into a tree and later died. Quote, everything around was shrouded in smoke and fog from the burning falling trees. Witnesses in the town of Kirensk and nearby towns at the same distance recollected the fireball flashing across the sky in the following terms. Quote, a ball of fire coming down obliquely. A few minutes later, we heard separate deafening crash like peals of thunder, followed by eight loud bangs like gunshots. And another one says, a ball of fire appeared in the sky. As it approached the ground, it took on a flattened shape. And another one states, a flying star with a fiery tail. Its tail disappeared into the air. Now, after this object passed across the sky, it approached the horizon where it was consistently described from distance of 400 kilometers as appearing like a pillar of fire, then replaced by a, quote, a cloud of smoke rising from the ground, or a cloud of ash on the horizon, or another one saying a huge cloud of black smoke. From a closer distance of around 200 kilometers, several witnesses gave better description of the object itself. It was called diffuse bright ball, two or three times larger than the sun, but not as bright. The tail was a fiery white band. Inconsistent colors were mentioned. White, red, flame-like, bluish-white. Perhaps it kind of has some sort of a flame-like iridescence. Now, all this stuff kind of describes how it looked like. But imagine this, it's kind of like seeing a nuke go off in your own atmosphere or something, in your own city. Now we kind of got lucky because Tunguska is the middle of Siberia. If this thing, according to researchers, would have like smashed in a major city, that would be just gone. If this thing would crash into New York City, all of the Manhattan Island would just be blown off. London, completely gone. Literally, like uh, London is, as far as I know, about 80 kilometers uh, radius or something. Something close to that. This would just destroy everything. Like, all the trees were burnt, and, and, like, we had so few casualties after all of this situation, only because it fell in the middle of nowhere, and all the people around it literally thought that, well, the world was ending. Which is why I'm so fascinated by this object, because, well, even though scientists were sent there, and we have quite a lot of um, accounts of this situation, know that, well, even though we have witness accounts straight after the event, First true scientific expedition was sent there more than 10 years later. The Soviets sent it in 1922. And the Tsarist well, they messed around for a long while. Individuals came and went, but there was like no huge expedition there. Which is kind of strange, seeing that this is, again, the largest thing that we know of that has dropped on the ground and exploded since, well, the beginning of humanity. Now, of course... The Russian people collected a number of accounts from eyewitnesses at a trading station, which is probably the closest permanent location. Trading station is approximately, you know, somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, kilometers away. And uh, here are some nice little accounts of this, to understand why and how you would truly be afraid 
of a giant meteorite smacking onto your city. And yeah, this is also a part of modern culture now. Once we get the conspiracy theories, you'll understand. But now, quoting from the eyewitnesses from the trading post. Closest trading post in Siberia, one that dealt with furs. If back in my colonizing Arctic, Russian Arctic series, I spoke about the colonization of Siberia, and there you had all these trading posts of furs who traded with the natives and all the stuff. This is from one of those. Quote, I was sitting on the porch of the house at the trading station, looking north. Suddenly, in the north, the sky was split in two, and high above the forest, the whole northern part of the sky appeared covered with fire. I felt a great heat, as if my shirt had caught fire. At that moment, there was a bang in the sky, and a mighty crash. I was thrown twenty feet from the porch, lost consciousness for a moment. The crash was followed by a noise like stones falling from the sky, or guns firing. The earth trembled. At the moment when the sky opened, a hot wind, as if from a cannon, blew past the huts from the north. It damaged the onion plants, which is, well, obviously important if you're farming somewhere out there, right? Later, we found that many panes in the windows had been blown out, and the iron hasp in the barn door had been broken. Like, impressive, literally, how, like a bomb explosion. But now imagine this, these are people in 1908, and they don't know anything about bombs being dropped. They know about cannons, so they kind of compare it to cannons, but it's probably the biggest cannon they've ever experienced in their lives. So, they don't know anything about nukes. Today we could compare this whole thing to a massive nuclear explosion in terms of energy, right? But if you have nothing to compare this with, and you're just sitting there, and you're a peasant in 1908 in the Russian Empire, in part of Siberia, where nothing ever happens, and everything's pristine, and there's a bunch of animals, and you hunt them for fur, and then you basically have a nuke drop near you. Okay, no radiation here, but in terms of sheer explosion and sheer energy released, yeah, that's a nuke. I mean, it's kind of similar to, if you could imagine, the fact that, to Americans here, because, well, sorry guys, but Americans are most of my audience, so I have to use these comparisons. Imagine that, you know, George Washington wakes up one day and he goes to his plantation and he's just, you know, sipping tea. Oh, no, no, he probably drank coffee because you guys tossed all the tea in, in the Boston Harbor, but, you know, whatever. Anyways, he's sipping his coffee and eating his, I don't know, carrot, potato, whatnot, whatnot, right? And then he's just sitting there and then, boom, nuke drops 100 kilometers away and, uh, like, there's massive explosions and everything. Yeah, this kind of fascinates me because... These personal responses and eyewitness accounts and their responses to this whole situation, you know, like Dan Carlin mentioned in his uh, Blueprint for Armageddon series, when people experience things that they even don't know how to react to, and when they are kind of exposed to these new, previously unseen ideas and events, yeah, it kind of shows you where society is gone. So this is another reason why I really like this very important scientific account here. And there you have another witness, quote, and this is a very poetic one, I, I really love this one because it, it kind of shows the, the mentality of the era, and we're going to have a lot of eyewitness accounts because this is what it's all about, quote, I saw the sky in the north open to the ground and fire powered out. The fire was brighter than the sun. We were terrified, but the sky closed again, and immediately afterward, bangs like gunshots were heard. We thought stones were falling. I ran with my head down and covered, because I was afraid stones may fall on it. This is kind of this open, pure devastation, because after the explosion, which is kind of a massive firework, stones drop onto the ground. It's, it's great. And now we're going to talk about stuff that's happening 15 kilometers from ground zero. Now, 
because the object, meteorite, exploded in the atmosphere and started hitting the ground, it really left no crater. It destroyed the trees and circular area because it was like a bomb exploding in the air, an airburst shell. But this also left a bunch of mysteries left unexplained for the locals. And again, conspiracy theories open, which we're going to get to. The effect on the ground was limited to devastation of a large forest area and animals and plants and like broken windows and people flying over. I think about two or three people died in this occasion, which is super lucky if you think about this, because this is massive nuclear power. At ground zero, three branches were stripped, leaving trunks standing up. But at distances from roughly three out to ten miles, trees were blown over, lying with tops pointed away from the blast. No one was known to have been this close to the blast. The closest humans were probably herders camped in tents roughly 30 kilometers from the ground zero. And these herders related, quote, and this is another one of these natural disaster relation stories, and it's coming from the very early 20th century, more than 100 years ago now, and I, I just love this story. Quote, Early in the morning, when everyone was asleep in the tent, it was blown up in the air along with its occupants. Some lost consciousness. When they regained consciousness, they heard a great deal of noise and saw the forest burning around them, much of it devastated. The ground shook, an incredibly prolonged roaring was heard. Everything round about was shrouded in smoke and fog from burning, falling trees. Eventually the noise died away, and the wind dropped, but the forest went on burning. Many reindeer rushed away and were lost. Amazing stuff, isn't it? One older man at about this distance was reportedly blown about 40 feet into a tree, causing a compound fracture of his arm, and he soon died. Hundreds of the herders' reindeer in the general area around Ground Zero were killed. Many campsites and storage huts scattered in the area were destroyed. So, this is this amazing part where everything just blows off. Some minutes after the explosion, distant observers reported a column of smoke on the horizon. The general terms indicated this was a vertical column. One observer said, quote, Where the body disappeared behind the horizon, a pillar of dark smoke rose up. Seems unclear from the reports whether this was a mushroom-like cloud from the explosion fireball rising above the landscape and pulling up smoke from the ignited forest, or it could be smoke from the forest fire, or, well, see from some directions a reference to the contrail, which would be vertical when, when seen under the flight path. And we still don't know. Well, I'd like to imagine there was kind of a mushroom-like, because of all the power that truly seems somewhat nuclear at its essence. Now, because the meteorite itself did not strike ground or make a crater, early researchers thought the object might be a weak, icy fragment of a comet, which vaporized explosively in the air and left no residue on the ground. However, modern planetary scientists have, well, much better tools for understanding meteorite explosion in the atmosphere. As a meteorite slams in the atmosphere at speeds around 12 to 20 kilometers per second or more, it experiences a strong mechanical shock, like a diver belly flopping into the water. This can break apart stones of a certain size range, which explode instead of hitting the ground. Some of them drop brick-sized fragments on the ground, but others, such as the one that hit Siberia, may produce primarily a fireball and a cloud of fine dust and tiny fragments. In 1993, researchers Chris Chiba, Paul Thomas and Kevin Zanle studied the Siberian explosion and concluded it was of this type, a stone meteorite that exploded in the atmosphere. This conclusion was supported when the Russian researchers found tiny stony particles embedded in the trees at the collision site, matching the composition of common stone meteorites. But now we kind of need to also get into the more, you know, scientific parts of all the situation. Because there's a lot of, well, weirdness surrounding all the situation. First of all, 
let's talk about the forest flattening, because I was lucky enough to actually read the expedition of the Soviet Union from 1961. And this is just great, because everyone just went there. The biggest expedition there was in 1961, and we have a lot of good reports on this whole thing. A study of the whole devastated forest area surrounding the explosion showed that the region of the forest flattened in 1905, not one of homogeneous primeval intact taiga, but had a complex history that must be taken into consideration in this whole data. Thus, fire expert Kurbatsky, who was from the Forestry and Lumber Institute of the Siberian branch of the Academy of Sciences, drew the following conclusion, quote, The region of meteorite impact in 1908 was basically a fire-devastated area that had been subjected to treetop fire during the first half of the last century. A partly flattened, dead and rotting forest was standing in this area. New forest growth has appeared among the dry and charred trees. By 1908, this second growth was some 70 to 100 years old. The southern and southeastern areas had apparently been subjected to fire somewhat earlier in the past than the central basin. The dead forest was first flattened and then fire swept this territory. It's not out of the question that the said two occurrences took place at the same time. The fire did not destroy the trunks of living trees, but only scorched conifer needles and small twigs. The forest destroyed by the fire of 1908 was not flattened at the time, but has in large part remained standing in the form of dead timber to the present era. The old stand of the dead and badly rotted timber left by the fire of the last century could have been laid low during the fire itself and been scorched from the bottom as a result of ground fire. There is nothing out of the ordinary in the suggestion that the larches were able to stand dead in the area of the meteorite fall for a period of 70 years after the fire of the previous century. This is kind of interesting because, you know, don't know much about forestry, but, well, apparently this whole thing had been uh, burned down in the previous era, and this kind of just knocked it on even further. There had been also surrounding swamps around the area, and uh, again, this is going to be a bit dry and scientific, but there are some evidence on the effect on the meteorite on the swamps. Quote, The observations of the 1958 expedition indicated that there was no meteor crater in the south morass and that there was no relationship between the formation of the thermocrastic funnels and the fall of the meteorite. However, these observations were not sufficiently reliable. Lvov Kovalevsky et al. undertook a rather detailed inspection of the swamps in 1960. They established that, quote, all the structural features of the basin's marshes are readily explained by terrestrial factors. No interbedding of peat and soil in the South Moras was observed. Kulik's does not the standing. This is interesting, and I'm mentioning this because this will play into a lot of our conspiracy theories that's going to happen later. Then, of course, there was the biological effect of the fall, which again uh, is quite surprising. Quote, the 1958 expedition drew attention to the pronounced change in the rate of growth of a number of trees subsequent to 1908, and pointed up the possibility of using, quote, biological indicators to ascertain features dating from 1908, as well as general changes in conditions brought about by the fall of the meteorite. Yemelyanov and Nekrasov showed in their subsequent work that accelerated growth is characteristic of a wide region around the center of the meteorite fall. A number of biological indicators suggested the probability that this phenomenon was in some manner associated with the meteoritic matter and should be studied. In 1960, together with a number of other colleagues, they began laying out the forestry assessment plots which made it possible to bring to light the unusual nature of this phenomenon. And again, in 1961, a group of biologists joined the expedition of the Committee on Meteorites to establish the boundaries and causes of the accelerated growth of forest in this area. 
Because the problem of accelerated forest growth and increased timber harvest in the areas of the north is kind of of prime practical importance to the Soviets, the, <clears throat> and this is going to be a long one, Old Union Forest Aerial Photographic Survey Association of the Main Administration of Forestry of the Soviet Union Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, A-U-F-A-P-S-A-M-A-F-S-M-A. Or something. Yeah, these guys participated in the project by dispatching a forestry assessment section to work together with the expedition. This work was performed by candidate of biological sciences Nikrasov, a forestry specialist. And, well, a number of others still. This whole thing was carried out in 1960-1961, and a total of 95 forestry assessment areas were laid out, and all the biological aspects of the phenomenon were kind of laid there. And, uh, you know, skipping across another bunch of very weird stuff that was going on there, which I can't understand, because, sadly, uh, sorry, Agia, I'm not a biologist, but we have some cool data about this. Like, we have five conclusions. Number one. This is from the evaluation of the date and everything they come up with. Number one. Where we have a similar combination of fire and forest flattening due to ordinary causes outside the environs of the epicenter of meteorite impact, the so-called western flattening, equally persistent acceleration of forest growth is encountered. Number two. There is no indication whatever of any change in growth range of bog communities beyond the moss layer, which grew directly of the mineral-rich 1908 layer over which the fire had passed. Number three. Although acceleration of forest growth after 1908 was observed in areas bearing no traces of the fire or flattening of the forest, these areas are situated in the immediate vicinity of the extensively destroyed areas and are spatially limited, and thus subject to the overall regime of a much wider region. Number four. No clear differences responding to boundaries of accelerated forest growth were ascertained as a result of cultivation of oats in various soil areas of the region in which the meteorite fell. And number five. The boundaries of the accelerated forest growth follow the boundaries of fire and flattening of the forest quite closely, but they do not correspond to the distribution of meteoric matter as obtained by other methods. So, basically, it was because of the fire and of the fertile ground. Which is very important to know at this point, because, to be fair, we'll be examining all the anomalies and theories just to say that Soviet scientists weren't really dumb, and that even Soviet newspapers at the time stated that we should really ensure that, um, you know, proper scientists get there and that everything happens properly, and they really called for investigation. This is kind of crazy, because, you know, these days we have so much scientific skepticism, especially in Russia, where, you know, propaganda reigns supreme, that it's kind of hard to imagine that people really would take everything seriously. Still, they did. So, there's another little thing that it's all about weirdness of this whole matter. How come I can trust statements from 1908 more than I trust things now? However, we have um, more accounts of everything. Another account that also will play into conspiracy theories. One Suslov wrote detailed the account of a Chukchan of the nearby Shaganir tribe. This Chukchi person would state that he and his brother were asleep in their hut along the riverbank when, quote, a whistling and strong wind woke each of them at the same time. Each of them could feel a shove by invisible hand, one so hard Chukchan fell into the fire. They could hear chaotic noise from outside and the two young boys became extremely scared and upset. They gathered their sleeping bags and prepared to leave their hut. Then, however, the thunder struck. This was the first of all the thunders. 
Suddenly, the earth began to move and rock, and a blast of wind so strong it completely knocked over their hut. Chukchen was pushed down and trapped by sticks of the hut, but he was able to see what was happening. From above him, trees were falling, the branches were on fire, the sky was so bright as if it there was a second sun. And then a second thunderclap came, even though the morning was sunny and there was no rain falling. This is just crazy, because all these thunderclaps, all these explosions, and all this fire, well, it left an impact on everything on the ground there. And now, we're finally going down to the strangeness and the weirdness. And oh boy, the conspiracy theories, because what's a good meteorite story that has left an impact on the scientific community and everywhere around the world, and what is one of the most devastating things ever to happen, than a good old, great conspiracy. Hello there, thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at Rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! And now we get to the, well, um, fun part. I've picked out four of the most craziest conspiracy theories for this whole event, to which we have seen scientific evidence and, you know, try to give you some background for how the impact worked and how people felt through it. But, uh, of course, of course there's a whole world full of crazy. And I just kind of placed them in a way that um, runs down from, you know, more sane to even less sane. Which is kind of a weird process, really, but, uh, well, there you go. I just thought it would be interesting to look at all these cultural aspects of this whole study, so... Number four. There is a theory, according to many um, so-called experts. <clears throat> Tunguska explosion was supposedly caused by annihilation physical process that occurs when a subatomic particle collides with its respective antiparticle of the opposite charge, producing immense amounts of energy. So yeah, there is a theory that it was caused by a matter-antimatter annihilation, or with a collision with a miniature black hole. Or a fun. According to this theory, first suggested in year 1941 by one Lincoln La Paz, the Tunguska event was likely caused by the annihilation of a chunk of antimatter colliding with the Earth. Although the antimatter theory explains the observed luminous phenomena and why no remnants of asteroid or comet were found in the area, existence of such large antimatter chunks is, well, quite often deemed being even theoretically impossible since we've only created a couple of atoms in laboratories. In addition, annihilation of the alleged chunk of antimatter would probably happen in the uppermost atmospheric levels since, guess what, antimatter annihilates with any matter and it might surprise you, dear listener, but the atmosphere, the air above you, is made up of particles. 
it's not really empty. There's like oxygen in there and nitrogen and all sorts of things. And and if you throw antimatter from space, and guess what, listeners, space is also not empty. Antimatter is not like neutrinos. Even they pass through the Earth. But like a chunk of antimatter would have probably just started exploding a long time before it hit like levels so close to ground. However, close to this is another other speculative hypothesis from the black holes. This caused that this um, explosion was caused by a small black hole passing through the Earth. This hypothesis was first formulated in the year 1973 by American scientists. Mm, sorry for putting that into quotes, but these guys are, well, you'll see. Albert A. Jackson and Michael P. Ryan. However, as there was no exit event, second explosion occurring as the black hole shut out in the North Atlantic, this hypothesis is considered wrong by majority of modern scientists, because really, really, black holes, if you pass through the Earth, you need to go out somewhere, and we really don't, you know, have seen any of that stuff. But um, this is just number four of weird hypotheses. Number three, however is a UFO explosion, or as they say modernly these days, because UFOs are kind of like an obsolete concept in the scientific world, right now it's UAPs, which stands for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, because UFOs carry this connotation of aliens, meanwhile UAPs kind of more imply neutrality and the fact that, you know, it probably isn't aliens, even though I'm really excited where... Uh, where Avi Loeb and other scientists at Harvard go with their new phenomenon searching, but um, never still for crazy. See, in year 1956, a Russian sci-fi writer, Alexander Kaznetsev, published his short novel entitled The Explosion, with his own explanation about the true cause of the explosion. According to his version of the story, the Tungutska event was caused by the massive nuclear explosion of an extraterrestrial spaceship. It um, really caught on, though, and Russian internet is full with theories about this explosion being caused by a UFO just exploding there, or the government shooting down UFO with, at that time, um, non-existent rockets, but that really hasn't stopped anyone from explaining things with um, aliens, and then, then uh, just to be safe, throwing even more aliens on top. And this is the number three in our top four, top craziest explanations, okay? This writer Kuznetsev, you know, I know where he got the idea. As while doing research, I found out that in the year 1945, which is 11 years before he published this story, which has now sparked massive interest in, in Russian-speaking conspiracy circles, yeah, he visited ruins of Hiroshima, the city that, as you all know, was devastated by, by nukes. And near the explosion's epicenter, he noticed still-standing trees with their leaves and branches ripped off by the sheer force of the pressure wave. And all these standing trees in the area which is why I mentioned them previously, which is how explosions work due to the weird physics, when he, six years later, visited Tungutska, he noticed these similar patterns. No crater, standing trees without any branches or leaves. And only because of this, even though I explained it to you in scientific terms why it happened and that they were there, he came to the conclusion that this had to be caused by a massive explosion probably of nuclear origin, and as there couldn't be any nukes at this point for humans, Alien nuclear spaceship, definitely. But hey, this is why you should probably, you know, learn something more about how science works to um, not to come similar conclusions. Number two theory. Nikola Tesla's death rays. I'm not kidding. 
Now, this comes from more Russian speculative boards, and you should really check out any other conspiracy podcasts out there. Maybe you can just uh, join them up or, or something, um, check out if uh, someone's done some work on it. Personally, I recommend the Garden of Doom podcast by Jeffrey. Uh, I was there for a single episode as well. We spoke about Baltic mythology, a bit of politics. It was kind of weird, though, but uh, check out Garden of Doom, made by Jeffrey, friend of the show. Please go check it out while I um, explain to you Tesla's death rays. Also, uh, just pondering while I was uh, looking up some stuff, uh, yeah, you should really also go and check out Isaac Arthur's uh, Science and Futures with Isaac Arthur on YouTube. I love that show, and I really hope that, you know, I get to work with him one day as well. He made an episode about weaponizing black holes, and as my friend, at whose place I am recording this, told me that, yeah, the black hole theory makes no sense, because it would really... a tiny black hole would probably have no impact on the whole thing. Anyway, Tesla. Back to nice buddy Tesla, because, you know, there's a little something to be said about all sorts of weird happenings on this planet Earth concerning explosions and lightning strikes and all that good stuff. Just have to mention Tesla in this whole matter, because another huge-ass theory on this whole process is the fact that Tesla, from Serbia, or Bosnia, depending on whom you ask, really, although he was born in Croatia, which even more complicates the situation, um, yeah, that he was testing some sort of a death ray, his famous wireless lightning control stuff, and that this caused the explosion. Which is kind of the weirdest part of all the things, is because I highly doubt that even though Tesla was active. Also, people are people who write about this stuff, um, a lot of them even... Look, this sounds discombobulated, but this is because it is. I mean, I really went down to the conspiracy theory boards and it was just bizarre. I mean, explosion itself and people's accounts of it. Now, those were cool, but, you know, having to study something that literally melts your brain, not so much. But yeah, Nikola Tesla apparently tested his device there, and there are people, if you want to check out more on this, please do. I just won't kill my brain on this. However, then there is the number one theory of weirdness. Which is, again... Taken seriously, and I'm not going to make a conspiracy theory iceberg on this show, but again, I highly welcome you if you're into this kind of stuff. And my statistics show that a lot of people who listen to my show also enjoy supernatural shows or true crime shows. So I now and then kind of feel like I have to drop something of this sort like that in here. But the number one weirdest stuff is that, um, well, long story short... Someone apparently listened to the local paganistic shamans and truly believed them, then tied that into Tartaria and the mud flood, and now it's all the same thing, because now we're speaking about spirit science and literal intervention of Agda, God of Thunder! And guys, UFOs, nonsense. Tesla, nonsense. Black holes, nonsense. I mean, if we're literally speaking about people who legit believe that this was caused by an Evenki pagan god of thunder named Agda, you just gotta believe them, right? Mikiv reports from Akulina, an Avenki woman who was closer than 20 miles to the epicenter at the time of explosion, and she later reported the event to the Soviet scientists. Quote, A mighty wind flattened our tent when we had been sleeping. A brilliant outburst of light blinded us. The wind was breaking trees like they were tiny sticks. A rising whirlwind lifted us off the ground. I lost consciousness. Similar to other studies, however... After she woke up, she remembers seeking her husband, Ivan, being lifted up by the blast and slammed into one of the remaining upright trees. And, like, everything just blasted everywhere. However, the local shamans explained this whole situation, 
of the Evenki tribe, by the way, the shamans were, who lived there in the area for thousands of years, Tungutska event was caused by Agda, the god of thunder himself. Dissatisfied by the tribal disputes, Agda reputedly sent demons with shining eyes and fiery tails to punish the disobedient Evenki men. Now, this could be all written off just another legend by the tribal peoples who probably don't know any better. But in this modern day and age of the internet, we have serious people on the Russian internets, sparkling theories about how Agda must totally be real because the Evenki are the true descendants of the Anunnaki, the ancient aliens who helped build the pyramids, and thus, this whole evidence was just the beginning of the apocalypse, and if you look at what happened after that in the 20th century, it must all be true. So there you go, there you go. I wanted to make this episode very scientific, but again, well, when someone tells me, hey, you gotta check out the conspiracies, I do. I don't buy them one bit, because for me, Tungutska Meteorite is one of those events that you probably could have heard about, probably haven't, but it's just a nice thing to look at, because for me, it was mostly the cultural perspective of, well, what happens if you're just a random person living in the area, and then the sky blows up in your face. I mean, to be fair, a lot of them probably thought about this event many years later when the Civil War began, and when other wars began. But this, Tungutska Meteorite, truly has left its mark on the cultural consciousness, specifically also here in the eastern border, so I kind of felt I had to pay tribute to this event. Glad you enjoyed this episode. Next one's going to be about the Soviet school system, from stories, with stories from the teachers and everything, and I hope you enjoy the show. Happiness is mandatory. And uh, while I'm having forgotten, join us on social media, find us on Facebook and Twitter, come to our webpage, theeasternborder.lv, Please click the donate button if you can. We'll appreciate any support. Also, you can become our patron and get all the episodes ad-free. And, well, maybe you'll enjoy the show. We're still catching up on everything we had to do, and I'm trying to make these episodes despite all of my health issues, but, hey, we're getting better by the episode. This didn't really work out as well as I had expected, but, hey, well, really, can't put too much astronomy here. Anyways, hope it wasn't too boring for you. Do svidanje, tvarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.